Warning. Explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, welcome back, everybody, to the Great Northeast BJJ Podcast. It's a special on-the-road edition, live from the truck that smells like salt and pepper, with my guest, my friend Trevor Stone. Trevor is like, uh, he's the toughest dude around, man. He's a BJJ brown belt, warrior, poet, teacher, philosopher, all-around savage. It was really cool because I got to learn, uh, I probably learned more about Trevor in this drive back, and I've known him for six years. So I think, uh, man, he brings a different perspective. So without further ado, the man we call the Shredder, Trevor Stone. Welcome back to the Great Northeast BJJ Podcast. We're trying an experiment today. We're uh, we're in the truck that smells like salt and pepper, apparently, driving back from Mass BJJ in uh, Arlington, Massachusetts, getting ready to get on I-95 with my man Trevor Stone here. We just went uh, we just went and did a competition class, getting ready, trying to get ready for Pan Ams. I've known Trevor for a long time, um, and we got our brown belts together. It's my size, we compete against each other all the time in class. We're our partners, we teach class together. Um, I think our dads grew up together. They did. Uh, so Trevor's been around this game for a long time. So let's see what he's got to say about uh, martial arts, jujitsu, poetry. Trevor's a fucking artist here. Um, so, welcome. Welcome to the truck, Trevor. Hey, thanks for having me. This is great. <laughs> uh, we've never done one in the truck, but I figured we'd try it out because we got a long drive back to New Hampshire. How did you, when were you, how old were you when you, like, first got into martial arts, man? Well, I was, as a little kid, about five years old, I took karate for maybe five months. But I had no attention span. Did your parents just like stuck you in or did you? Yeah, well, I wanted to do it. You know, I watch all the movies, I dress up like a ninja, you know, they're (laughs) like, get him in the martial arts, get him in there. So I trained about five months, but I was a typical kid. I was like Justin in our Taekwondo program. I mean, uh, Jiu Jitsu program. I couldn't keep it together. So they pulled me out. I didn't have the attention. So later on, I was uh, 15 years old and I was working at my uncle's printing company in Dover, New Hampshire. And this guy, JD McDougall, Started working there. Same shift. Where I worked after school for four or five hours a day, whatever, and a couple days a week. And JD was working second shift there. So he started talking about, he did martial arts. He was a Taekwondo guy, Shotokan, some various stuff. And uh, he attacked me in the parking lot one night on break. And I threw a spin and elbow and I cracked him right in the face. And he goes, hey, how did you do that? And I'm like, I don't know, man. You just kind of moved and I hit, you know, I just reacted. He said, well, you know, I do martial arts. We talked about it a bit. He goes, you know, come train with me. I'll teach you whatever I know. Come into my garage in Farmington, New Hampshire, and I'll we'll train on Sundays and we'll treat we'll train. So I started training with JD about when I got my license. I started driving at 16 and started training. And that was it. We'd go four or five hours every Sunday. 
He taught me striking, you know, basic kicks, punches, knife. We learned basic weapons, staff, sword. Taught me to throw a grappling hook, blow gun. We used to go out in the woods and do stealth, knife fighting. Like this guy was, he was a martial arts guy, traditional, but he was like, listen, I train traditional, but if it doesn't work, I don't do it. So everything he learned, he'd say, does this really work? And he'd really test it, practice it. You know, he, he, you know, all that stuff. So I pretty much started training with him. And after a couple of years, he got me into Taekwondo. I moved into Hapkido and Korean martial arts. I still train with JD. And then I eventually moved into jujitsu grappling. So what is Hapkido, man? So Hapkido is all stand-up, joint locking, wrist locking, throwing. Essentially, it's off-balance technique from the standing position. And then you're doing locks and a lot of wrist throws, arm takedowns. It's Korean? It's Korean. So what happened was Aiki Jiu-Jitsu was the samurai style back in the day, back in the, you know, in the war days in Japan. Now, Aiki Jiu-Jitsu was essentially old-school Jiu-Jitsu with wrist-locking, throwing, and it was a little bit of Judo. Because in a battle in the, in the samurai days, you know, you're fighting sword and shield and bow and arrow, you can't be rolling around on the ground with somebody. You get stabbed. So they would do, that's why Judo was so popular, because they would bump each other in the melee, throw each other to the ground, get your sword out, stab them. That's why wrist locking was important. If I can destroy my opponent's hand or wrist or get the arm control, I can take them down or hurt their sword arm and then finish the battle. That's why you didn't see a lot of the grappling at that time in history. So these two dudes, uh, Choi Young Sul, who was a Korean, who was a slave, who was stolen from his family in Korea, and he was, uh, he was the manservant to this man, Takeda, who was a Japanese general, famous in the early, late 1800s, early 1900s, top of the chain of the samurai era, which was dying out at that time. And so Morihai Yoshiba, who is the founder of Aikido, also trained under Takeda at the same time. These two guys were like the top, cream of the crop. So essentially, when they got to high proficiency, grandmaster in Aikido Jiu-Jitsu, they went on to create Hapkido, Choyong Sul, who normally, if you were a foreigner, even if you trained under the Japanese, they wouldn't let you teach to your foreign nation. Like he was released as a manservant in his late 40s or 50s, and they usually branded them, and he wasn't actually branded. Takeda was like, he was like a son to him. He said, go teach what I've taught you. Do your own thing. You're free to do whatever. So he went back to Korea and he started teaching his martial art, which he he deemed Hapkido, which was essentially a mix of Aiki Jiu-Jitsu and then his philosophies on fighting. And, and then it kind of, it's become what it is in the modern era. You ever seen the movie Ip Man? Uh, I have seen some of it. I yes. just watched it last night. Yes. Like, it's pretty good, man. Dude, Donnie Yen is a beast, man. It was, uh, like, I just got... I got Netflix. And, yep. Uh, it was like it was later than I should have been, and I was like, "Oh, I'm gonna watch this movie." Everybody was sleeping, and so I started watching Ip Man. And uh, man, it was good, dude. It was really good. Don, Donnie Yen is a he's a true you know kung fu Chinese martial artist, and he's a great actor. His mother is actually an amazing uh, kung fu grandmaster. She's like she's world renowned. Huh. Boston Mark is like she is like cream of the crop. Yeah. Kung fu. How did, uh, how, when did you decide you wanted to, to fight MMA? So I had been doing Korean martial arts. I've been training about eight years, and the UFC got big. I watched that fight between, everybody saw it, Stefan Bonner, Forrest yeah. Griffin, UFC final. And I had been thinking about, you know, I've been doing martial arts eight or nine years. I, I didn't really have any wrestling or grappling, but I had a good amount of striking. But I'd always trained hard and strong, and I'd box. I'd do tons of rounds. You know, I didn't care. Fighting was okay with me. So I said, man, this game looks really cool. I got to learn this stuff. So I was training at the time, Troy Pickering, 
training partner of ours, good friend. He's been on the podcast. The Pied Piper yeah, of uh, Pied martial Piper arts. Martial arts. And, and Troy, he's, he did Hapkido. He's ranked under the same instructor. He did Taekwondo under a different guy, but he's also Korean background. We had trained together for many years. He had also, before that, he had done um, he had done catch wrestling and Brazilian jiu-jitsu and a little Jeet Kune Do with his instructor, Paul Muller. He had done some Sabaki fights and like one MMA fight and five Sabakis or whatever, which is like a hybrid MMA. So I said, I want to do this stuff. After I saw that fight, I was like, I got to try it. I got to test myself. Is my martial arts real? Will it really work? Because that's as close to a fight in the sport contest as you're going to get. How old were you? I was, uh, my first MMA fight, I was 25 years old. So the other thing, this is what I learned on the ride down. You're not, I mean, I knew you weren't retarded anyway, but you like, you know, you're a smart guy. You went to high school, dude. You went to, took classes at Harvard. I did. I, I spent two semesters at the Harvard Extension School, but uh, college life wasn't for me at the time. But yeah, like I'm semi-intellectual. Both my parents, <laughs> both my parents are, are Harvard uh, Extension School graduates. They're very bright people. Uh, and uh, I was raised in an intellectual household. I was reading the classics at a young age and always had books in my hand as a kid, you know, which meant, which was helpful. So so you're training at, where are you training when you take took your first fight? I was training. We had a hot. We had an MMA program. We were teaching out of Miller's Korean Martial Arts, our Taekwondo school. Well, it was Taekwondo, Hapkido, and then I did swordsmanship as well. But we, Troy Pickering and I, and Scotty Gray, and Evan Favorite, were teaching uh, each. We were teaching a night a week of MMA, and we were we were sparring and doing MMA sparring. And Troy Pickering was teaching me grappling privately, and then he was on his class. You know, we would he would teach. And so I had been grappling six or eight months and had all my years of stand-up training. Pretty much him and Evan prepped me for the fight because they had had some experience. And I fought for the WFL under Mario Ramos. Uh, I fought this kid who was actually a two-time Russian Golden Glove boxer. <laughs> Still never been hit that hard in my life. <laughs> oh, Andre Nevsky crushed me. He actually did three fights and then ended up stopping MMA. But really good, talented, big left hand. Yeah. And he was big. It wasn't, you know, off-weight class. It was not... Not a smart fight. I would never take one. But it was good. I mean, I, I last night I almost dropped him, broke my nose, fractured my orbital, <laughs> took some damage. I did re, re, didn't spar for a while. And then Seacoast opened about six months after that fight, maybe eight months. So then I really started training real Brazilian jiu-jitsu, full boat, Thai boxing. You know, Keith Walsh came in. and then How many it. fights did you have total? I had eight professional fights. My first one I took at 155. Eight professional fights? Yeah, they're all professional. I actually fought <laughs> the first MMA event in New England, I mean in New Hampshire, yeah. which was at, during Bike Week at Laconia in 2000 and, uh, 2006. No, it would have been 2007. 2007, I think it was. But yeah, it was the first event. There were no amateurs. You just, that was it. Oh, yeah. They made the rules later on. You had to have three amateur fights before you could fight professionally in the state. But originally, oh, is that what just, the rules are in New Hampshire? That's what the rules are now, yes. Oh, Massachusetts, I don't think you need it if you have um, certain pedigrees. Like, Quinlan didn't have to do any amateur fights because nobody would fight him anyways because he was right. world champion. BJJ, yeah. Pan Am champion. You know, he couldn't get fights. So you fought under the GFL, too? I fought under the WFL. My first fight, I fought GFL uh, six times. Wow. Yeah, six times under the GFL, and I fought under uh, Triumph. Um, I mean, I'm, yeah, no, is that what the league was called? Yeah, Triumph once. Yeah. That was cool. You fought some animals, dude. I fought I some tough that. dudes. I fought Pedro. Yeah, that kid is a sad. Pedro He's, Gonzalez, you know, savage. You know, really, for me, at the time, there was no smaller guys. I really had no business being in the 135 division. 
right. nowadays if I fought again I'd do 125s but that's not in my cards so but yeah like Pedro cuts down from 160 to make 35 you know and I'm walking around 145 at the time which makes a big difference yeah oh, but it was a cool big, he's a big guy some, he's very talented we had a good you know we had a good fight fell into his best technique a little early but these you know what happens but I, I always tried to take tough fights I didn't like want to take sleepers to build the record up you know some guys like to do that <laughs> so yeah I had eight fights I ended up being four and four you know, I was four and three at 135, and then 0 and one at 155. I mean, it's funny that you fought at 155 because you are mm-hmm. definitely not even 155. I was. Five. I actually. I weighed in that day. I was 154, must... 153 pounds with pants on and stuff in my pockets. Oh, yeah, dude. I... I filled my pockets because he was heavier than the promoter told me, and it was same day weigh-in, yeah. not 24 hours before. So we weighed in. We fought like two hours later. So no cutting. <laughs> so. I, I weigh in, and then he gets on the scale, and we were literally 10.1 pounds, which is the absolute maximum for the state that they would even allow. And they were like, your, your weight, you know, you got to discrepancy. I said, I didn't care. I've trained too long for this. So that was fine. Whoa. Yeah, we got a little traffic. Uh, we got a little hold up in the traffic Stop on that. 95 North, but we're good. Stop texting people. Start <laughs> driving. Don't, people doing podcasts in their car, messing up the traffic put, flow. Put your phone down. In, you can save a life. In Wakefield, uh, Mass. So what was, like, is there one fight that, like, is memorable to you or any? Uh... Yeah, I would say, so I fought this kid, Christian Rivera, my second fight in the GFL. It was my third fight overall. So I'm one on one at this point, and I fight Christian, and he beats me. The only contest I ever went into, tournament or anything, out of shape. I've been going through some stuff, and I was hoping the fight would pull me out of some, some life stuff that was keeping me down. And I did fight, and it did help to pull me out, but I didn't train as hard as I should have. Won the first round, had great position, gave up a little bit, and then he ended up, I was tired. He took position, and, and he choked me out in the second. So a couple of years later, I fought him again. Uh, I was actually supposed to fight a guy for the GFL, and he ended up backing out. At an opponent change, he backed out. And so I picked up a fight with Triumph two weeks later on short notice. Christian said, yeah, I'll fight you short. So we did a rematch. Well, we're going into this fight, you know, bad blood, rematch, (laughs) tough fight the first time. Really nice dude, but, you know, we had a really good matchup. So I get into this fight and, you know, it's pretty tight. We get into the third round and it's pretty much neck and neck, like really hard to call. A lot of back and forth, up and down. Uh, it was really tight. So I ended up, I gave up an ankle pick on the third because I knew I needed to hit the guard. So I get him in my guard. And he's He dropped about 10 elbows on my head. So that's <laughs> where I messed up my ear, my left ear real bad. I got my cauliflower ear. And then like real, I knew it was do or die, do or die, do or die. And finally, 19 seconds left, pretty much down on the scorecard from that last takedown. I hit the arm bar and I caught it for the victory for the, you know, nice. get that redemption. That sticks out the most. My cousin had been out from California. He flew out to see me fight. My brother was there. And he actually hadn't been to a fight since my first fight. Because he didn't like watching me get beat up so bad in my first fight. Me and the older brother, he like really messed with him. But uh, that was the first one he came back to watch. And it was so great to give them that victory. A couple of my best friends were there. It was awesome. Man. Uh, so on a side note, this was another thing that I never knew really until I think my, maybe my dad told me. Like, But your cousin that you're talking about, his dad was in a plane in 9-11, right? Like, yes, my Uncle Douglas was on uh, the first plane that hit. He was flying, actually, to go help my cousin move into uh, UCLA for the weekend for college. Um, and he actually changed his flight that morning, which Whoa. is weird. Yeah. I was on the way to the airport to pick up his vehicle with another guy. I worked for his printing company at the time. I was still oh. working for him. My dad worked there. It's very weird. 
yeah, losing him like that was very, it was strange. Um, you know, it's heavy, man. It was tough. It's heavy, it was dude. tough. Gives me the chills. We're super close. I'd worked for him for many years. Uh, and it was tough. The company's closed now. It was just never the same without him. Yeah. Um, I was, you know, the one silver lining I felt, he was actually going to California. Him and my cousin were very close, even though they lived on opposite sides of the country. You know, divorced family, even since my cousin was a young boy. But they, he always came out every summer and lived out here with his dad until he was like high school years. But even after that, my uncle had been going to California. He was there three weeks out of every month for like the last six or eight months before he passed away because he was working for a friend out in, out in uh, Los Alamos doing some work for his company. So my cousin really got to spend an extra amount of time with his father that last year. Yeah. It doesn't bring him back, but, yeah, yeah. you know. Uh, Jesus. That's tough. Yeah, he's Whew. never, I always, you know, my cousin's a great kid. He's. It, it's tough. He's, it took him a long time to recover. No doubt. You know? And it's been, I think he's always been a little lost. You know, I don't know what I would do without my father at such a young age. Yeah. You know, 18 yeah, years old, that. trying to figure it all out. Circumstances of tragedy. Uh, oh, man, that's heavy, dude. It's heavy, know? for real. Um, so what, like, your last fight, right? You, you, you got eye, you got an eye issue. Yes, I detached my retina after, it was training for a fight after my my last uh, one. Yeah, I had fought Matt Smith my last fight, and I had a, he, uh, he ended up TKOing me in the second. Now, he, it, close to I remember when close, he was like, he was fight. the champ for. He was the belt holder before Pedro beat him, yes. Oh, uh, yeah, yes. yeah. I mean, he was, he's a great wrestler. Excellent wrestler, yeah. yes. He's the, I still, I think, believe he's the only kid to win a national title as, from New Hampshire at the high school level still. Yeah. Um, from, from New Hampshire. I'm not sure if that's true, but at the time it was. Very great wrestler, good fighter. He's retired still, I believe, too. I think that was his last fight. Yeah, I think he got married, like, right after that. Smitty's wrestling barn. Yeah, him. he runs the barn with um, dad, Holmesy. Right? Him and oh, Justin yeah. and his dad run the barn, yeah. So, so you were and it's like, like a CrossFit place too. Oh yeah. So you were sparring and uh, or something? Yeah, I. You know, the doctor told me uh, I had had an old eye, a retina tear that had healed, but I believe I was wrestling one night and I got elbowed on a scramble and it just my eye was weak after years of stand up fighting. You know, like fifteen years and you know me, George knows me. Like <laughs> I don't care if you're a heavyweight. I don't care right. if you're Brock Lesnar. I will throw rounds with you. And, and that I'll, was the attitude. And I'll stand uh, in the pocket. Like, right. I think my last sparring session, I remember I sparred with Cody Lightfoot. Oh, and he hit me so hard that, like, I was instantly on my on my knees. <laughs> and Troy Pickering was like, hey, you're going to get up. And I, like, it's one of those times where your knees go out. And you don't even realize you're, laying, you're, like, on the floor. Uh, and I just fucking got up all pissed off and just kept throwing, you know. <laughs> and, like, it's probably better that I got injured and I can save my brain a little bit. Yeah. That was the attitude, though. I mean, that was, you know, that was, that was the kind of the... The attitude of that gym at that time, I feel yes. like, you know what I mean? Like, it yes. was like, it was a tough... Killer, a, killer be killed without attitude. A doubt, without a Within doubt. reason, we yes. were always good to each other, but we pushed it as hard as we could. Wow, well, the sparring was, you know, the, the, the boxing, the sparring, yeah. and the, that was, it was intense. Oh, yeah. It was intense, man. You better be ready to go home with a, with a hurt <laughs> nose and a headache, you know, three out of five days a week. Oh, yeah. You know? So... So, like, you know, so what is that? So what's up with the detached retina? Like, I mean, how did you know there was something wrong with your eye? So I had a spot. You get, like, a blurry spot. Because what happens is the retina separates a little bit. And then the fluid in your eyeball starts to go in between the retina and the rest of your eye. Because the retina is, like, the backing of the sphere, essentially, from what I understand it. And so when that starts to separate, you get a, you get more and more blur. And essentially, if it goes more than halfway apart, you, you go blind. Yeah. Once it's 50% detached, they cannot repair it. So I had a little blurry spot, 
and I had had it for a few months and my regular doctor had looked at it and they thought it was a floater in my vision. You get those black spots. Yeah. I actually had a lot before the retina surgery and they're gone now because it, it drains all the fluid in your eye when they do the surgery. So I had been fine. I had been cleared and I had even been to my eye exam. I had a fight for CES coming up against, I think it was Ruben Ray. I don't know if that's right or not, but I think it was him uh, in, in Rhode Island. And so I had just got my eyes done a week before. And then the doctor looked, she said, everything looked fine. If it gets, if the blurry spot changes, call me. And I wrestled one night at McDonough street, Wednesday night class. And I remember waking up Thursday and going, uh, my, you know, the spot's bigger. That ain't good. So I called the doctor right away and she said, yeah, go to this guy in Kittery. He's a retina specialist. He'll look at you, make sure everything's fine. And he, I went in, he looked at me for one minute and he goes, okay, what are you doing today? I said, well, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go to work. He goes, no, you're not doing any of that. When's the last time you ate? You're going into retina surgery. And depending on what you ate, it's going to be now. Okay. So it was like four hours later, I was in surgery. It's an wow. hour, you know, an hour later after, well, an hour of surgery, I was out. And then it actually popped apart again. My old, the original spot was an old tear that had healed. That popped apart after the first surgery. So they had to redo that. Right. So I had two surgeries in 10 days. Just kind of popped apart on its own. Yeah, thing. like 20% of the time, even a retina, any retina surgery, it'll pop apart. It's yeah. just so delicate. And uh, and so it popped apart. I went back in. They did surgery too. And then I'm, I've been fine. I actually, my vision got a little bit better in that eye. Nice. I actually have a little bit of scar tissue, like an, like an X or a little cross in my vision. But it's going away over the years slowly. So you don't worry. Really. I mean, I know maybe you worry a little bit about it. Grappling, not so much. Like I do. You know, it took me a long time to be able to shoot. Yeah. Because I think that's how it happened, like in that shot scramble. And it took me a while to dedicate to the shot. And I do get leery when people do the fingers out a little bit. Oh, yeah. But everybody's pretty good about that. Yeah. But um, I don't worry about it because, like, you know what? Even if it gets hard again, like, they can fix it. And I'm not going to – I can't stop grappling. I gave up striking. I was good. I promised my doctor I would not get punched in the head anymore. I won't spar. <laughs> I won't do MMA. But you're not going to take jujitsu away from me. I can't. I can't live that way. I'd go blind first. <laughs> There's just no way. Yeah. yeah. I know people that are blind in one eye and they survive. Like, I yeah. would mind, you know. I will tell you, though, I knew a guy that was blind um, and he had a glass eye. Mm. And we used to rock climb. We used to, as, we used to call him Pookie. <laughs> and uh, Pookie, man, he, I, I loved him, but he was a grumpy bastard. But Pookie was like, like he really had a glass eye. Like, I don't know. Man, I can't remember how he lost it. But I will say, like, if you have only vision in one eye, you have a constant fear of losing vision in that. Oh, you know I'm what sure. I mean? Like, oh, he sure. was constantly worried, you know? And it changed my, like, I just never thought about it until, like, you know. But anyway, shout out to Pookie. What's up, brother? I'm sure hey. you're probably not listening. But <laughs> Pookie was my man. He was grumpy as hell. When did, uh... When did the, the, so you have a thing called the Rambling Soul. Yes. So when did that, when did the writing start, man? You write, you write poems. Yeah, I write poetry. And you've been um, writing lately. Yeah, I just kind of got, I've been a long time. Like, yeah. It's, it comes in waves, you know, the create, I use my creativity in different fields. So like, sometimes I funnel it into my jujitsu. Sometimes I funnel it into some other projects I have. Sometimes I funnel it into my writing. Yeah. Writing for me. I started it as like, I was probably about 12 years old when I discovered poetry and in, in, a, in a class at school, we did like a poetry unit yeah. and I really, the teacher was like, gave me a lot of encouragement. She really liked my stuff and it really, everything I wrote, people, somebody seemed to like, and I liked it. I started was this at Dover? Uh, this was at Barrington uh, Middle School. Yeah, yeah. 
I started to uh, I started to use it personally as like a therapy tool. Yeah. I use my writing a lot of times to get through things in my life that have happened. Yeah. And because uh, it kind of poetry, people will say, "Well, what does it mean?" And I'll be like, "Well, I'll tell you what I was what it means for me." But it's going to mean something different, differently to everybody. That's the joy of it. Like it can be anything. It can inspire you in some way that the writer totally doesn't feel. But that doesn't matter. Like it speaks to you on your own personal level. You know. You get nervous putting it out there, or are you used uh, to it now? I'm used to it now. It yeah. was it was a little when I started rambling solo a few years ago, putting it out on Facebook and stuff. Like it was a little bit tough. But honestly, I started to just flood it. Yeah. But I still have pieces of writing that I haven't put up that I would that I'm like I don't know if I'm ready to share that. Yeah. Like there's old relationship poetry <laughs> I, I haven't put up. There's a few things that are generalized, but some are much more specific. Yeah. And I keep some of those close. I mean, eventually I'll share it. You know. Wow. But I love to write. I think it's cool. It's very. I, I have. I'm trying to work on different styles, like abstract style. Right now, I'm kind of putting together a lot of rhyming style poetry, which I like. With like a beat, I like to feel when I write. It's kind of like a flow of like almost like a song in my head with a beat, yeah. you know. And sometimes I do really abstract word word placement and stuff. See like uh, similarities between writing poetry and doing jujitsu. Um, you know, in a way, because like when you train, you go through systems where like you work on one thing for a while, you get good at it, and then you kind of change, and you don't even do that for a while. You know, you put it away. At least I do. And I'm sure everybody goes through those cycles. And then, like, you get good. And then you remember, like, oh, yeah, I'm really good at this. I should start doing this again. And then you get back. And then you meld the new thing you've acquired and that old thing you were really good at. And you find those correlations. Just like anything else. Like, I write, like, a certain style for a while. Branch out maybe a little bit. And then I go back to my roots and I try and meld, like, oh, this style with this style. I think, you know, it's all creativity. And it can all be kind of layered together. You know? Yeah. I mean, really, jujitsu to me isn't just a martial art. You know it. It's a way of life. But it's really, essentially, all it is is self-improvement. That's really the root of it. Finding solutions, solving the problems, getting better, being a better person, doing it better, finding out why you can do it better and helping other people do it better. Building a better society through building a better you. Just like Roman said today, fix yourself, man. And then you can fix everybody else. And then we all build up together. And that's so true. How many times nowadays everybody points at people point, our society, everybody's pointing that finger everywhere else. But on the mats. I'm fine, but you guys you, are all fucked right. up. But you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. people do that. Don't everybody. But like you go yeah. to the jujitsu academy, people, that's why we love it so much. Because the people that do that, they're not drawn to something like jujitsu. Right. They can't handle it. They want to make excuses every day. What did you say to me on the ride down? Uh, man, about worrying. Like I was telling you about. Oh yeah, like my whole life philosophy. If I can't control it, I don't worry about it. I don't waste one second uh, or scrap of worry or I'm a worrier, energy. Dude. I worry. I don't worry at all. It's good. I've been. That's been my life philosophy since I was pretty young, and it really helps. I love it because I can't control what George does. Uh, I can encourage George. I can't even control what George does. I can, yeah, <laughs> I can try and help George. I can try and influence George, but at the end of the day, if George does something that I don't want him to do or that I didn't think he should do, it's not me. Yeah. I can't control that. I can't control whether I get the promotion. I can only put my best foot forward and and do everything in my power to, to put me on a good path to get that promotion. You know what I mean? 
you can't control the role 100%, but you can put yourself in good places to make things happen. And that's how I look at life. I don't, because people, I mean, stress and all that, that's the biggest killer of life, man. When you stress every day, totally. those people that live in that, you know, that world where they hate everything around them, it's like, how can you be like that? I feel like that's what I'm going to die on stress, man. Stress is going to kill me. Uh, you got your jujitsu, man. You, <laughs> you get so much of that stress out on the right, mat. Right. And I see the happiness in you when right. you're training. You know what I mean? That uh, genuine love for life. You won't die of stress. <laughs> I know some people that might, though. Right. Because right. they got, I always tell people, I don't care if it's ballroom dancing. I don't care if you want to paint pictures. I don't care if you want to dress up and dance ballet. You do whatever. You find something that gets you out of bed. And you live for it. You need something. And it can't be your family. It can't be your spouse. It has to be something that you can do without. I mean, you may need people to practice with, but it can't be dependent on a relationship or a family situation because those change. People pass away. Relationships break up. you got to have something all for your own. It's not selfish. It's healthy. You know, even like if you got kids and you maybe you can't train three days a week or you can't paint three days a week, but one hour a week just for you it's i think it's the key to a healthy life yeah definitely um, that's profound dude jesus <laughs> that was good that's the truth man um you like teaching i love it yeah i said a long time ago uh, my mom's like she's a teacher at dover high school what does she, she teach? She teaches uh, history. Uh, this year, she's got a world cultures. Mostly AP history and psychology have been her bread and butter for many years there. Yeah. She's revamped the AP program at least twice since she's been there. She is amazing. My mother is, she's got the gift. And I feel like I'm a good instructor because I have the gift because I got the passion for it. Yeah. You know? Because that's the thing. Like, how many how many teachers you have in school that were bad? And it was all because they just didn't care. It was they a job for them. It was just, it was a job. There was no passion. Right. But those people that are passionate about their work, I mean, look at your, look at your Graham, Miss yeah. McVean. Uh-huh. She was passionate for that school, for her life. She put her life force into there and it showed, man. She influenced so many people in so many positive ways because she was living that life, really putting herself in there. Yeah. You know? It's true. And, it's true. Uh, and I feel like teaching, that's the key, man. You got to love it. You got to live it. You gotta, you gotta, and you gotta always look. I'm always trying to look at my methods. Can I do better? Can I teach better? What does so and so do that I like? You know, what drills can I come up with that like? What, what did we do in the past that was great? But what can I come up with new that's gonna help? You know? Yeah, teaching's awesome. It's rewarding. The kids are frustrating. <laughs> Man, they're frustrating. You know it. I do. But that's rewarding because some days we sit back and they're doing jujitsu. It's amazing. And you're just like, yeah, they really get it. Yeah. They don't always want to show that they get it, but they get it. Yeah. It's amazing when they do it. That's for sure. There's definitely stretches where I'm thinking like, man, I don't think these guys have learned anything, though. Then all of a sudden you're like, oh, they know everything. Yep. Absolutely. You watch Justin try and pass a guard. Right. Even Jacob. Those kids, man, they know. Yeah. They come at you. I think uh, when you teach, when you teach, do you try, do you like... Do you have different styles for different people? You know what I mean? Do you teach different people different ways or, or do you just kind of do your thing? And, you know? I try to. I don't think I do that as much as I, I should. Um, but I think the key that helps us at Port City is we have so We don't have a huge core of instructors, but we have a varied core of instructors. And we're all a little different. Yeah. And I feel like um, 
we help get through to all the different types. But I don't think I teach differently too much to students. And I think that's a weakness of mine because there are times when it would help. But I feel like I translate the information quite a bit, you know? Yeah. yeah. I'm very vocal. You hear it when I teach. I'm yeah. yelling. I'm screaming. I'm, I'm calling people out in a nice way. But really, just making them be accountable for where they're at when they're drilling, especially. I always say it, man. Drill it real. Right. Drill it real. Don't just get in your guard, escape, you know, get your grips like you're going to get a grip in a match. Because you get that lazy habit where you like take somebody down halfway and then you kind of let them get up. You're going to do that in a match. You're going to get in trouble. Don't be lazy. Don't be lazy. Don't be lazy. Don't cheat yourself out of your reps. Right. You, uh, what do you think about competition? I love competition. I don't think it's the be all end all. There's plenty of guys that don't compete that would you, wipe that would beat people. Do you love you do love it? I love it. Yeah. I love testing myself. To me, I've always wanted my jujitsu and my martial arts to be real. Yeah. You know, and I did that's why I did MMA, that's why I used to compete in Taekwondo. I don't necessarily I want to win. My goal isn't to be a world champion. I'm not gonna do or die world, but you know, I'm gonna put myself in a place to be able to win a world championship if I get there to the worlds or if I do pans, I'm gonna put myself in a place to win. But it's not my only goal, but I feel like it's important. I think it's important to test yourself. So I skipped over, but like, you didn't you go to Korea to train Hapkido or something? I did. In 2002, I, I went to Korea for two weeks. I tested for my first degree in Taekwondo over there. Um, and I trained Hapkido and swordsmanship for two weeks. Yeah, that was awesome to train in like the motherland of the style I was training. Um yeah, we trained six hours a day, and for the 15 days we were overseas, we trained uh, 10 of them. We did two three-hour sessions. Two of the di- three of days, I did. Uh, we did two three-hour sessions, and I did two hours a night at Taekwondo. So it was pretty rigorous, especially Hapkido. It's all you've been there, man. All wrist locks, all right. wrist throws. You know, getting thrown 200 times a day, like, and it's all pain tolerance. Hapkido is like cranking harder, cranking harder, push the threshold. That was awesome. It was rigorous as hell, man. What do you think about, like, uh, being that you come from traditional martial arts, now you do, I mean, I don't know, jiu-jitsu is traditional too, I guess. But, like, what about belts? You know what I mean? Between the two, between, I feel like there's jiu-jitsu belts, and then there's... All right, so here, this is how I figured it out. So, like, I got up to Taekwondo, I was a second degree in Taekwondo. Second degree black belt. Hapkido, I was the same, second degree black belt. And my swordsmanship, very close to black belt. I'm even trying to get back into training that. So I've been, I've had some rank. Even JD, my private instructor, gave me an unsanctioned black belt after like three and a half years of training. And I tested for all these in a traditional atmosphere, you know, old school style. To me, like the Korean martial arts, I can only speak for those because I've done them, but they're very similar to like karate, kempo, all those, you know, kind of Americanized, as I'd say, belt systems, all that stuff. A black belt in Taekwondo is like a blue belt to purple belt in Jiu-Jitsu. You have proficiency over an array of techniques. Taekwondo black belt isn't supposed to be a master. Like a Jiu-Jitsu black belt is supposed... Like a Jiu-Jitsu black belt, to me, you have a mastery over your game. You can make it work on most opponents, barring a huge size discrepancy. But you can make Jiu-Jitsu work against almost anybody, to a point. And then you have a wide proficiency of techniques that you know and can execute in certain situations, but they're not your bread and butter. But you have a wide variety. To me, that's a master in Taekwondo. You're a master of 
a wide, you know, you have a game that you play that you're a master of. Uh, but master level Taekwondo is like a fourth degree. But if you look at the timetables, you're training t- 10, 12 years to acquire this rank. In, ta- in ta- you know, jujitsu, you're 10, 12 years to black belt. You know, it's like a six to 10 year, but not many people are on the six year path. Right. So to me, that's really how I see it. If you're a black belt in Taekwondo, because they'll say, oh, my kid's a black belt in karate, you're only a whatever in jujitsu. It's not the same. How does. Uh... So this like came up. This is like always. There's every six months. I feel like there's some jujitsu drama about uh, you know black belt kids or whatever. How did like if you were in taekwondo or karate or whatever, mm-hmm. and you're a kid and you get the kids black belt, like what happens after you get the kids black belt? So like I did WTF taekwondo, which is Southern style, which is the style in the Olympics. Yeah. So Olympic style, you can be up to. Uh, you can be up to a third degree black as a as a junior student. Yeah. Um, so you don't then, like. And then once you turn, I think it's sixteen, but it might be eighteen. Then you can continue to. So you cannot be master rank until you're over eighteen. But you could get up to third degree because they start young. Like in Korea, they're doing taekwondo in gym class. That's yeah, yeah. their gym class. You know. Yeah. So like, uh, the when I took taekwondo and taught and was instructor and everything. We had a kid, 10 years old, test. he was the youngest I had seen at our gym, test for his black belt. He'd been training since he was like four and a half. Yeah. So, I mean, he wasn't given that thing. Right. This is a great story. So, Joe, this, I actually ran into his mother last year. And Joe's a monstrous kid, just graduated UNH last year, plays rugby. I remember Joe's little tiny Asian, little tiny uh, Korean kid. He's a beast, right? So, Joe, 10 years old, sparring with a 13-year-old. And they're both going for black belt. And Brody's beating them, beating them up pretty good because Brody was a big kid for 13. And in Taekwondo, you get the leg length. You can really work your opponent over because it's all kicks. Yeah. Brody kicks Joe in the head. Joe stops. He throws up on the floor, hardwood floor, right in the middle of the test. Huh. Runs in the bath, 10 years old, runs in the bathroom, grabs some paper towels, wipes the floor up, puts his helmet back on, gets in his stance. Nice. Doesn't even question or worry about any of that. Right back at it. He loved it, though, right? I mean, he was a beast, it. man. Now, he did stop training a lot a year later, once he got his black belt, to do traditional sports, football, you know. Yeah. But uh, I tell you, that was like, that's the martial arts right there, man. That's the spirit. That's the heart of it. No matter what, you just keep going. They got to kill you or it's not over. That's it. That's how I look at it. My instructor, JD, my original trainer, he always said, you die first. I mean, you kill them first, then you die. You get stabbed. You get stabbed in the gut. I don't care if you bleed now. You finish the job. Yeah. Just like you seen the Last Samurai. Yeah. You know that old guy who gets his arm cut off, and then that last scene, right? He gets cut in half, but he's like just dying, or he gets stabbed, I think, in the gut. He's dying. He kills that guy right before he dies. <laughs> That's how it is, man. You finish the job. Finish the job you started. That's it. Then man. you can die. That's why when we're rolling, oh, if man. you're not gonna kill me, I ain't giving it up. Oh, dude, you're the toughest guy to freaking finish tough toughest it's like you know when you get me you have oh man yeah it's like and it's a rare fucking occurrence i can tell you that holy crap you're tough man there's no doubt about that um so you and i got brown belts together which was pretty uh that was amazing yeah that was a cool surprise i thought we had a year it was a surprise i didn't think it was coming it was a surprise for me for sure um you feel different when you got a brown belt I didn't feel different. I feel different now. I've kind of tried to look at like, so when I got the brown belt, I started looking at things and technical wise, like I don't think all that stuff matters. Yes, my technique should continue to improve. 
But being a brown belt's not about getting better technique. Yeah, I got to fill the holes in my game. Sure, you're always doing that. But being a brown belt is like, when you get that new belt, it's about looking at yourself as a person. Like, what can I do to it? I got I to gotta be this belt. I got to... I got to live the person that's supposed to wear this. I got to be that person on the mats. I got to be that person in life. I got to be that person off the mats. And I've really tried to like, what can I do to be a better leader? We're in the upper, you know, we're still, now we're in the upper, upper group. We're getting close to the black belt level. And it's like really just trying, how can I be a bigger part of this community and the gym and be help people out more as well as closing the holes in my game. I didn't feel different at first, but I do now a little bit. I feel like we're kind of growing into it. We're starting to understand what it really means to be a black belt. I mean, a brown belt. You know, to get to the next level, because it's really, it's really just everybody's different at every belt, right? Your progression from white to black is different than mine. Yeah. Even though we're on a close scale, like yeah. there's other people that their progression is totally different. Yeah. You know, you see a guy like Tyler. Tyler at black belt is going to be totally different than some other people. Yeah. You know, his his skills at purple are close to some black belts. Not that it means because you're a black belt, you're better skilled, but it's just everybody starts in a different place. We're a team, but it's very individual on the the grading scale, I believe. That's good, man. I never, I mean, I don't think enough jujitsu, I don't think jujitsu sometimes like puts enough emphasis on what you're talking about right there. Like, you know, be a brown belt out in your life. Don't be a fucking jerk to people or whatever. Like, you know, be a, just be a good person. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I like that, man. That's uh, I think that's yeah, important. Like, not that I did before, but you, you know, try and live, live clean, live good. Yeah, and treat people right. Right. Like we're we're tough. Like we don't need. Not that we have people in the gym that are like that. We don't really have loudmouths because we're right. we're a tough club. And like you, loudmouth, you'll get beat up. You right. won't stay. You know, it's a good family. If you got an ego, uh, you won't stay right. at our place. Right. We won't allow you because you won't you won't be able to handle the beatings anyway. You'll get policed. For that's sure. right. That's right. Uh, but you know, like. Yeah, trying to live a good, like every step of the way, trying to live a better life. Yeah. Elevate it. Give back more to the community. So that, I, I've said this before, right? And I never, I guess I didn't, and I think I heard Saul Hibero say this one time. And it was like, because he's, he's always talking about being like a samurai. And his thing is like, you know what samurai means? It means to serve. That's right. And uh, I never knew that. And I, ne- and that, you know, it's taken me a long time thinking about that, like, Cause I, I don't know, man. I'm inherently pretty selfish, I guess. But yeah, like I don't to serve, you, you know, to serve. Like that's I the gotta, whole root of it. Yeah, I gotta serve people somehow, right? And then it maybe it maybe that takes the, you know, maybe if I'm, I read something too, and it was like, if you're like feeling sorry for yourself, or it's because you're not focusing on helping other people, it's because you're focusing on yourself, you selfish bastard. Don't you know? wallow in it. Yeah. yeah, get out there and help, help somebody, and it probably yeah. get you out of your. Uh, you know, your misery or something. Absolutely. I don't think you're selfish at all, man. Yeah, probably. You, you give back. You know what? You're Try. you're giving back. Try. You teach the jiu-jitsu, man. You bring people that joy. Try. You help them improve. You keep them honest on the mats. You know, you're always willing to help people. That's your. You, that's how you give back to the community. That's Try. amazing. You got your soap. You <laughs> give people a, clean. Tortuga soap, a great product for a good, fair price. Thank you for bringing that up. Fair Try. price. I can't believe we haven't talked about this. Oh, holy mackerel. No, I'm trying, man. I'm trying. That's, uh, so what, uh, what's next? You know what I mean? Like you think about the future, you think about, you know, what, uh, 
Uh, you're going to Pan Ams. We're, all, we're, going we're doing the Pans, Pans in a few yeah. weeks. Uh, I'm trying to do a good fight tournament after that. Nice. Trying to get some comps in this year. and just I feel like it really cleans your game up when you start to roll for comps because you have to be, you know, this time's to be creative. And I've been through a period of that, but I feel like now's the time to shore things up, work on doing what you do best, get in that competitive mindset, not giving things back, you know, going to war. <laughs> I like that. I'm going to try and stay in that vein for the spring and summer if I can. Yeah. Um, I keep talking. I want to get back into the sword, train yeah. swordsmanship for many years. It's very close to my black belt and that. And that's one of the few arts I would like to get back into to, to revisit. I still train on my own. Yeah. Swing my sword around quite a bit. But, uh, you know. I, saw, I like how you, I like how you, uh, man, you like bring the traditional stuff, you know, to the jujitsu, man. Like you have a traditional attitude and you're bringing it into your jujitsu man i like it i try to i feel like uh doing the mma was awesome but there's so many people that just want to fight yeah. and they like even when i did jujitsu in the beginning that's why i didn't evolve for a long time because all i worried about was mma yeah so like i did jujitsu i trained but i was like if it wasn't fight specific i was abandoning it right away yeah. i played close guard forever only because of that because it was like what am i gonna do in a fight close guard yeah. stay safe sweep get on top and pound you know hold position basics but that's why my basics are good, I feel. But now, it took me after the eye injury and getting back, really being like, okay, jujitsu is all I have now. I can't do MMA, I can't strike. It's not a supplement. Not that I, it was so much. I was starting to get more involved, but I was trained a lot. But now, it's like I really had to embrace the art of jujitsu, yeah. you know? And I like to bring traditional atmosphere into everything because I think it really helps. I'm fortunate with the traditional. You look at Troy Pickering, he's got a great foundation. You did judo, which was, you know, what. Yeah much more traditional than we are yeah. like you really learn a good foundation that way sometimes i will admit i do miss a little of the you know bowing and uh, i'm trying to bow more when judo. i come on the mats yeah. like yeah i bow and we bow in with the kids i think that's really good yeah. i was even thinking about trying to pull out the tenants of taekwondo we used to recite them before class yeah we could have tenants of like tenants of jiu-jitsu because it's all yeah. the same i mean it's yeah. all perseverance and dominable spirit yeah you know, integrity, it's all the same stuff. It's living a good life. You know, it's all the basis. Yeah. I don't care what you're talking about. That's uh, the cool thing about the martial arts. If you're doing it right, you're all on the same page in a way. Just like, it's like a religion to me. Religions, yeah, they're all different. But if you look at the core of any religion, any real religion, it's all the same, man. Don't be those, a jerk. those same 10 things apply to all of them. <laughs> and then they got to get all angry and, and argue about the little details. Like, if you're living those 10 things, you're doing it right. Right. You know? Be a good person. Treat others the way you want to be treated. Right. The golden rule. That's it, man. Yeah. And if you do that to people, you'll have a good life, I feel like. Yeah. If you don't, that's, I think people, a lot of people that have a lot of bad, bad luck or problems, it's because they're really not living the right way. You fall into that bad stuff, man. Trap of crap. Yeah. You get this cycle of crap, man. You get that, like, you get, you get cloaked in that negative energy. Yeah. You know, it's like today we're doing that hard workout. Everybody's dying. Like Roman, he's a great instructor. You know, he, he really he had those great encouraging words, and he really brought the level up with his energy. Yeah. Brought that fired level up. up man. He had people that wanted to. They were going to puke before yeah. we even did the burpees. I wanted. Run, I was ready to run yeah, through the wall at the end. I mean, I was exhausted, like, but I was like, man. People he, were like, "Oh, my phone's ringing. I gotta go. I gotta go check it." Oh, uh, and then he's like, he inspired us, and we killed that. He did. He got me Everybody fired up, man. It. I loved it. I told him, I was like, "Dude, you're gonna have to give me that talk again in a couple of weeks." You know, like that was a good. Uh, yeah, that was good, man. Uh, 
well, hopefully this thing comes out. Hopefully the we're dry, you know we're doing eighty miles an hour up Route ninety five. Um, hopefully, hopefully it sounds good. We'll put this out on the internet, man, because I think that you got a lot of good stuff to say, man, that people need to hear about. Like, um, man, I really like what you're talking about getting the brown belt. You know, taking your belt outside, like and being a better person. I think sometimes in jujitsu we forget about that stuff. Like, it's just about like. You get so concentrated on winning the match, yeah, and getting yeah. the choke or whatever. Totally. Yeah, totally. I agree. That's why I feel like teaching is really important to get to the higher belt levels. I really, I know, I know, instruction is not for everybody, but I feel like everybody should do a little, even if it's out of your comfort zone, because it really, when you teach, if you're doing, you know, you you're giving yourself to those people. You know, you're not just like, oh, do this, do that, like. You watch Derek, any of us, any of us that teach there, you, you're putting yourself out there on the mat. You're yeah. really pouring yourself into them, you know? Yeah. And, it, and it's it's selfless because, like, you're not worrying about your training right then. That's why I don't like to jump in a lot when I teach. I know sometimes you've got to because yeah. you got to get your work in, but I like to try not to because, you know, it's, I try and be there for my students 100% as much as I can. Yeah, it's hard if you're, like, uh, if you're trying to do the drills you're not watching the other people That's right. do them. And you're not available for questions yeah. all the time. Like if it's advanced, it's a little easier because they're more advanced. They're kind of troubleshooting their own things. You know, we teach the fundamentals, so it's like you got to really watch them. To, and they got questions a lot, things that you wouldn't even think of because we're past that point. We don't ask those questions. Right. We, like, know the basic part of it, you know? Yeah. Thank you for having me. Oh, really yeah, awesome. brother. I was, I'm glad we uh, – I'm glad it was a good training today, man. That was – we had wars, dude. That was great. That was great. great. Um, so people can check out your, your poetry on Facebook, right? Rambling yes. Soul. Rambling Soul, yeah. If you want yeah. a message, you guys should check it out, me. man. If you like poetry, read it up. I've been throwing a few things up there lately. I'm hoping, you know, I'm going to do a book here in the next year or two, I think. Nice. Always wanted to do it. I just, it's got to be the, I, I always, it's got to be the right time. Yeah. But I'm starting to get the creative stuff flowing and a few more, and, you know, trying to write some more. Nice. Um, you can always find Trevor and I on the mats at Port City BJJ, man. We're teaching. We're training. Come down. Um, I teach at Nostos Wednesday nights, Devon's Academy, yeah. Nostos MMA. So yeah. come down there if you want to roll. Buy some Tortuga soap, you dirty, smelly listeners. <laughs> don't, be, don't be Cheeto. No, dude. Don't smell like, oh, God. Don't smell bad on the mat. Don't be the stinky guy. Be the good smelling guy or girl. Um Thank you, everybody that's been listening, man. I really do appreciate it. Um, I know you heard a lot of me lately, but we'll get Jay and the Riddler back in the mix. I'm just trying to record uh, whenever I get the opportunity. So driving, we're driving back from an hour and a half. Figured it'd be cool to kind of see what, uh, you know, just Trevor and I shooting the breeze here on the way back. We didn't get in a car accident, so it was all good. Thanks, brother. Awesome. Thank you. See you guys. Peace. Peace.